Go ahead and grab a Bible if you don't have one. There's some up here, and we could find Acts chapter 15 together. Thanks, man. Acts chapter 15. If you got one of our Bibles, it's page 538 still, because we were in Acts 15 last week. Um, I had a pretty good week this week, um, but one thing I need to say probably more regularly than I do um, and remind you guys of is in the history of this church, I've probably had to apologize to you all a handful of times, four or five times, if my memory serves. And, um, and so that, I don't know, if you've heard a pastor apologize to people very often, it doesn't happen a ton, uh, which is probably not great. But one of the things that we do when we do premarital counseling is we go through this idea that if you're going to be married to somebody, you're probably going to have to forgive them more than you forgive anybody else on the planet. And people don't think about that. They're like, I married my dream girl. Like, that dream girl is going to sin against you, and you're going to have to forgive her. And they're like, ah, that's going to be hard. Uh, If we're going to, like, if you're going to come here, and I'm going to try and pray for you and, and try and lead you, and this is going to be your church, like, we're going to have to forgive each other. It's just going to how it's going to have to go, right? And uh, maybe you never thought about forgiving your pastor at some point, but if I say something that you're like, I don't like how you said that, or I didn't, I misunderstood why you said that that way, or maybe you didn't misunderstand. Maybe I said the wrong thing. I talk for 45 minutes every Sunday. I say a lot of dumb stuff sometimes. So, um, or it's coming across in a way I didn't intend for it to. Megan and I were listening to my message on the way to Seattle uh, for a little family trip we did, and she's like, you know, the things you're saying are compassionate, but the way you're saying it is not compassionate. And sometimes I don't realize that because I just get excited. So all that to say, if I ever bum you out, please ask. Give me the opportunity to say I'm sorry because that may be what needs to happen. So anyway, Acts chapter 15 is where we are at. We're going to start in verse... I don't remember where we're going to start. 12. So find that in your Bible. Page 538, if you got a white or a blue one. Um, I'm going to give us a little bit of a run in here. Uh, We've been working through the book of Acts. If you followed along with us, you've seen this community of Jesus followers grow into this thing in the first 14 chapters of the book of Acts. And we saw uh, the church grow and expand. It was very exciting. And then people groups outside of the Jewish community started following Jesus. And so now it's kind of jumped the the cultural borders of Judaism is a big deal because at the beginning, all those people who followed Jesus were Jewish. Now we have Gentiles, which is just the Jewish word for non-Jewish people, uh, responding to the gospel. And that brings us to Acts 15. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas had just gone on their missionary journey. They had preached mostly to Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish community. They returned to the home church in Antioch, which is, again, a non-Jewish city uh, in modern-day Turkey. And most of the people in that church were not Jewish. And what happened was, we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 last week, is these uh, religious leaders from Jerusalem came the 200-mile-some-odd journey north to Antioch and started telling people, hey, you need to be Jewish. You need to get circumcised in order to be saved. If you want to go to heaven, you need to get circumcised. Start following these rules. And Paul and Barnabas freaked out. 
They absolutely were like, no, that's not okay. This is ridiculous. And maybe most of us don't consider that a huge issue, but it was a giant issue to Barnabas and Paul um, because it was misrepresenting God, and it was what Paul called making the gospel of no effect. That's what he would say it later. It's ruining the gospel. You make the gospel, which gospel just means good news. It's like taking the good news and making it not good news any longer. Now, maybe you hear me say that, and you're like, calm down, Jared. It's just one little rule about circumcision, and it's not, it, one little rule cannot mess up the entire plan of God, could it? Actually, it could, because what it does is it makes the good news no longer good news. Here's what I mean. How many of you know that you should eat better than you currently do? The rest of you are liars, right? <laughs> Every single person knows, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. Oh, I should be better at this. How many of you know you should be more patient than you are? How many of you know you should spend more in time investing in the important people in your life than you currently do? So I just asked three very simple questions. Every single hand went up. Because we all know I could, be, I could be a little more patient. I probably shouldn't have eaten that the other week. And so here's what, I didn't even give you a standard. Do you realize that? I didn't even tell you the things you should eat. You made that, I let you decide that on your own. And you still said, I don't eat very good. You, you get to pick your own standard and you didn't make it. I didn't even tell you how patient you should be. And you're like, eh, I'm not good, right? You get to pick how patient you think you should be, and you still didn't measure up on your own. So this idea that if we start adding rules and qualifications to the gospel, you can't even make up the standard in your own minds that you should meet, let alone the standards of a holy creator. God, how are you ever going to follow any number of rules, even one simple one, in order to get yourself into heaven? It's just not possible. It's making the good news not good news. It'd be like if I came to you, I was like, I got good news. I'm going to give you $1 million. You're like, yes. And it's like, when you grow to be eight feet tall, you'd be like, that's not good news. I'm never going to grow to be eight feet tall. This is never happening. Well, same thing. This is not good news if I tell you, you get to go to heaven. Yes, if you follow these rules. Ah, I can't even follow the rules I know that I should follow in my own heart, let alone the rules that we would make up and place on one another. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so what happens is, we, we take what's supposed to be good news, we make it not good news, and there's a really big deal to Paul and Barnabas. So they start this argument, and this is a big deal because as we began last week, we saw this argument between Paul and Barnabas, and they're like, you're making the gospel not good news to people. And on the other side, you had these religious leaders, the cool kids, some very well-thought-of cultural elites. They were Pharisees, who in those times were religious leaders, like culturally influential, highly educated. These were the people who had gone to school for a long time, had degrees, letters after their names. Everybody in town would have known them. And they had become believers in Jesus. So yay, that's good for us. I mean, good for the Jesus team in that these culturally elite people have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But they're still adding these rules on to following Jesus. And so there's this huge pressure, okay? This huge pressure that's taking place, this argument. 
And we read all this last week, and Paul lays out his case for the simple gospel and, and tells of all the things God has done through him and, and through the gospel and, and through the Holy Spirit. And then on the other side, these cultural elites, these important people, are saying, no, we still think you need to be circumcised. And then Peter listens to this. He's listening to this back and forth between these two sides. And Peter stands up and says, you know what? Paul's right. I preached the gospel in Acts chapter 9. God put it on my heart to preach the gospel to people who were not Jewish. And God sent them the Holy Spirit. And they hadn't been circumcised. They hadn't followed any of the rules. They hadn't done any of the things that Jewish people would say that you need to do to be acceptable to God. So Peter's right. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. Peter has just stood up and said, hey, these guys are right. This is simple. And what we have is this very interesting dynamic. Because before the group of people that were sitting there, it's kind of a trial thing going on here. The 11 apostles that were left, the disciples of Jesus, are sitting there kind of trying to decide, like, which way do we go? Do we say, yes, you got to be circumcised to be saved? Do we say, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved? And, and, and they're kind of like going back and forth. And then Peter stands up very clearly on the side of Paul and Barnabas saying, from my experience, God does not require circumcision in order to send his Holy Spirit and therefore get into heaven. And everybody holds their breath. Okay, Peter's just said this. Now what are we going to do? So that's where we pick it up. Verse 12. It says, after Peter said this, all the assembly, verse 12, fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter's Jewish name, uh, has, related to God how, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And what the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled by blood. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in the who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now in the big picture... What has just happened here is that the followers of Jesus have decided to turn their backs on this cultural influence that they possibly could have had. 
They have turned their backs on the important people. They have looked at the religious leaders, the fancy, the popular kids, right? They've looked at that and they said, you know what? The gospel doesn't lead us down this path. We're going to pursue what is true and right rather than what is popular and easy. And the coolness, the acceptance factor, my majority, right? They, they turn their backs on that. They stay true to the gospel, which historically has not always been the case, right? Sometimes the people of God try the cool factor. They try the cool, like they want to get the cultural power. They want to win the election. They want to have the influence. They want to do this thing, and they turn their back on the gospel. But that's not what happens here. And so I think this is a great example of how to handle this and how they actually go about making this decision. Like how, how they stay true to the gospel and turn their backs on what the culture has to say. First of all, this is kind of a sidebar, but it's related. I wonder why Jesus didn't just tell them what to do when he left. Why didn't Jesus just say, hey, write this down, guys. 20 years from now, it's going to be a big deal. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Why didn't Jesus just say it so clearly? Peter, write this down, put it in, put it in a safe place. <laughs> You're going to need this later. It would have been so much easier. In fact, why didn't he just give us a whole long checklist of all the things we needed to know? Wouldn't that have been easier? Like, these are all the issues you're going to come up with, just so you know when the question comes up, no, do we have circumcised to be saved? I don't know. What's a checklist say? Checklist says no. Okay, good to know, right? That would have been so much easier. Jesus left, and he left. He's kind of like, I'm leaving you with some things and a couple ideas, and I'm going to let you figure it out. And you're like, man, why would, why would he do that? Wouldn't it be so much easier if he just gave us a checklist? Well, he didn't. And, and, and I point all this out because Jesus intentionally left us to walk into these type of situations with this type of pressure. I want you to feel that pressure a little bit. I want you to look over on one side of the room and see like very important, wealthy, influential people. And I want you to look over on the other side of the room and Paul and Barnabas, who remember Paul was just stoned to death not too long ago, was poor, had been traveling from city to city, like not culturally relevant, not important, not powerful, not highly educated. And there's a pressure, a tension now. Which way are we going to go? And Jesus did not hide us from that. He didn't just give us a checklist to say, like, here's how you navigate it. He let us sit in that pressure a little bit. Why wouldn't he just make it easy on us and give us a checklist? Here's why. If he gave you a checklist, then you wouldn't need him. You just need the checklist, right? If you just had like 20 points and you're like, check, check, check. Okay, this is the answer to the question. You would not need to actually have a relationship with God. You would just need the checklist. It'd be like if my son Toby came up to me a couple years from now, like he's 12 now, but you know, six years from now, he's going to be 18. It's going to be great. Maybe. I don't know. It could be bad. But anyway, right, if he came up to me a couple years from now and he's like, Dad, I'm 18 now. Could you just give me all the things I need to live my life? And then I won't ever have to come back and talk to you. Like, Jerk. He wouldn't say that. He's nice. But also, I'd be upset. I'd be like, no, I want you to come back and talk to me. I want you to come back. Like when your first child is born, like I want to be there. I want to know. I want you to call me and be like, the kid's not sleeping. I'm like, welcome to my life when you were born. Right? I want to. 
have these conversations. I want to help him remodel his bathroom. I want to help him figure out like what to do in these things. Or maybe not even help him figure it out, but I would like to walk with him through these circumstances. Like that's the whole point. I don't want him to be like, thanks for 18 years. See you in the next life. That would be awful. And some of us wish God would make it that easy. Give me a checklist, God. And God's like, I don't want you to have a checklist because I want you to. He wants relationship. We've said this over and over and over and over again. The whole reason God does anything that he does is that you would know him. He wants you to know him. Not because he, he's like some, like, I need you to know me. It's because it's what's best for you that you would be connected to the God that created you. So he allows us to go into these issues of tension and pressure and not have all the answers and not have a checklist where you just go, I know what to do, in order that it would drive you towards him. And actually then that, that pressure, that navigation of difficult circumstances becomes really, really good for you and really healthy because it drives you to God. So if this is the position we're going to take, if we're not going to run from pressure, if we're not going to run from difficulty, if we're not going to run from the hard issues and circumstances of life because we understand it drives us towards the Lord, then how do we handle them? What are we supposed to do in the midst of these things? And this is what the, the apostles are now trying to figure out. And so look at what James does in verse 15. He interprets what he is experiencing by the word of God. This is the first place he starts. Right? We run into pressure. We see this pressure. We understand this pressure is not negative. It's probably actually positive in our lives. We don't go, ah, I just wish the pressure would go away. We go, okay, how do we handle the pressure? How do we handle the tension? When there's two ways to go and one of them feels really good to my flesh and one of them is probably the right way, how do I navigate this? Well, first... We interpret our experiences by the word of God. Okay, so what happens is Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, this is what happened to us. Peter listens to that. He says, this is what happened to me. And now James stands up and says, okay, well, is this in congruence with the word of God? Or is this something else entirely? Because here's the truth. Your experiences are great to a point. There's a lot of people out here who are deceived about what they're experiencing. They're like, oh, what's wrong with me? Is I, I'm depressed. Remember, I talked to someone recently. It's like, oh, I'm really depressed. I, I can't figure out what's going on. And I was like, okay, tell me about what's going on. Well, I'm lying to this person. I'm lying to that person. I have a whole bunch of credit card debt. And uh, I was like, I'd be depressed too. Okay, so we do this thing where we misinterpret all these things. We need to interpret them by the word of God. And that's what James does here. Look at verse 15. James says this, with this, the words of the prophets agree. So the prophets is the Old Testament uh, scriptures. So he's saying the Bible says this, just as it is written. Now he quotes starting in verse 16. Uh, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In this passage, from the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to bring all the nations to me. 
All the nations mean not just Jewish people. I'm going to bring everybody on the planet to myself. There's going to be a remnant, and all these different people groups are going to be drawn to and called by my name. So this is a quote directly from the Old Testament book of Amos. And James here is basically saying, why are we surprised by this, God? Guys, why are we surprised by what God is doing? We should have seen this coming. It's in our Bible. The Bible says all nations are going to be drawn to God, Gentiles included. So this is good. We have a couple of things to figure this out. We have our experiences. We have the Holy Spirit through those experiences. We have the Word of God now interpreting those experiences. And we have one more piece that Jesus kind of left us with in order to figure out these things. And maybe you haven't considered it. I'm going to spend the rest of the time on it because it's one of the things that we do not use at all in 2021. We go, yep, I got my experiences. Yep, I got the word of God. That's it. That's all I need. And there's actually another thing that God gave you to navigate this pressure and tension, and we don't use it in America. We don't use it at all. I'm going to frame it like this. Let's go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their missionary journey. You remember that? They have Acts chapter 13 and 14. They were on a missionary journey. God was doing miracles through them. Paul got stoned to death. God saved his life. People are getting saved right and left. There's riots and threats of violence. And, and Paul and Barnabas are making it through. Just incredible story after incredible story all the way through. Demon-possessed things going on. It's nuts, right? God's doing miracles for them. They get back. And these religious leaders come up from Jerusalem to their home church in Antioch and say, hey, guys, it's really cool that you went on a missionary journey, but you did it wrong the whole time. You actually should have been telling people to get circumcised in order to get saved. And if you were Paul and Barnabas, you'd be like, who are you guys? Like, we just saw thousands of people get saved. We just watched God do miracle after miracle after miracle on our behalf. We just watched God sustain us on this incredible missionary journey. And now you're going to tell us we did it wrong? Forget you guys. Pound sand. Get out of here. That's what you would expect these guys to say. But they didn't do that. Paul and Barnabas voluntarily make the trip to Jerusalem to bring the issue up before the church leaders in Jerusalem. And in 2021, we're like, why would you do that? You don't have to listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have any control. Like Peter doesn't have any control over Paul and Barnabas. He can't make them do anything. And that's where we live in 2021. We don't want to be controlled, right? We don't want to be told what to do. Anybody in here who really enjoys being told what to do? No hands, right? Nobody likes to be told what to do. And so when we read this of Paul and Barnabas going to make amends with a people group that has no control over them, we're like, why would you even do that, Paul and Barnabas? You don't even need to go do that. And two things that are happening here that are completely foreign to us. The first is this. There's a humility and a submission in their hearts at play that is like, it does not exist in our world. And when I say our world, I mean America 2021. This idea of like humility and submission to another just doesn't, we do not have it. And then the second thing that is happening here is a respect for church authority that we in 2020 are like, nope, nope, zero. 
That we and I get it. Okay, I'm going to start with that one because that's probably the thing you have a harder time with uh, than the other one. But the church authority thing, I get it. In 2021, like we are products of the Reformation, where you know our brand of Christianity branched off from the Catholic Church, and we saw abuses all over in the authority structure of the Catholic Church. The Reformation started, and now it hasn't stopped. We've seen abuse after abuse after abuse after abuse. People abusing church authority or position within the church. Everybody looks around and goes like, hey, no thanks. And I get it. I get why you would be like, yeah, I'm good on the whole church authority thing. I'm good on the religious leader power trip thing. We've seen all these abuses, but... What we've lost is we don't ever listen to anybody anymore. We don't have anybody in our lives who could tell us if we got off the path. We don't receive any correction. We don't have anybody around us who would actually tell us something and we would listen to them. It's gone. It's completely gone. If I told you something you really didn't like at church today, you would leave. That's how 2021 works. That's going to happen this morning. All churches all across the city. People are going to walk in and they're going to be like, does he say things I like or not? And we've lost the idea of church authority. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to do with this because I know you wouldn't listen to me anyway. And you don't like to be told what to do. But I am going to tell you the idea of spiritual authority is here in the Bible and it's not in 2021 for the most part. It's here in the scriptures and it's absolutely gone in our world. In fact, look at verse 19. James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should, my judgment, who are you, bro? Like, why do we got to listen to you? Why would you tell us what to do? What do you mean your judgment? You don't speak for all of us. Are you kidding me? Don't tell me what to do, James. Who are you anyway? It's pretty interesting. This is not James, the brother of John. That guy got uh, executed earlier. This is probably James, the brother of Jesus, is what most people who are looking to these things historically said. So apparently he has the authority and is considered the leader within the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, he figures, and, and people agree with him, that this is his call to make. And even more incredibly, Barnabas and Paul listen to him as he makes this judgment and go back to their church in Antioch with the letter that he wrote and the judgment that he said. So here we have this kind of Two things, like we said earlier, God gave us these things to handle this pressure. And one of the things he gave is experience. Another thing that he gave is the word of God. And the third thing he gave is the community of believers. That is a gift in order to handle and navigate difficult circumstances in our lives. And I said in 2021, we're just like, nope, don't need it. I don't need the people around me. I don't need a church leader telling me what to do. I'll figure it out on my own. I'll just keep scrolling through the podcast until I find one I like. I'll just keep asking the different pastors around town until I find one who says it's okay to get married, even though I'm living this way. I'll just go find somebody who already agrees with me. I don't actually want to have to think about or struggle through this pressure. And I get it, man. Authority gets abused. 
But if you have nobody in your world who will tell you the truth and you won't receive correction from anybody who you actually have relationship with, and this is such a key, who you actually have relationship with, there's a bunch of guys on the internet who you could, like, you could download their thing. You'd be like, oh, that was so good. They don't know you. I hate to burst your bubble. They have no idea what's going on in your world. They're saying things, hopefully, as the Holy Spirit is working through them, but it is no substitute for somebody who actually knows you and can look in your face and say, hey, this, this, this is not great. This is not, hap- this is not awesome. And, and I said I'd start with the church authority thing. Now let's go to the heart behind it. It's a heart of humility and submission. Now I get it. Submission gets a terrible rap in our day. Probably from MMA. I don't know. In MMA, submission is where you like force somebody against their will to like tap out. Like you choke them to death or something. That's the idea of submission in our world. But that's actually not the biblical idea of submission. The biblical idea of submission is the one who is doing the submitting is doing it willingly. Like it's intentionally putting yourself under the authority of somebody else. Now you listen to that and you're like, that sounds stupid. Why would you ever put yourself under someone else's authority? Oh, you know who our example of submission is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The submission of Jesus is what led to his glory. You get that? The the humble heart of Jesus submitting to the will of another. Remember, the night before he died on the cross, he said, not my will, but yours be done. How many of you ever start a day with not my will? Be honest, you don't have to raise your hand. Because I know if it's anything like mine, not very often. We start our days with like, my will. That's not how Jesus was glorified. Jesus reached the pinnacle, like the greatest thing that has ever been accomplished in the history of humanity was accomplished through submission to the will of another. Think about that for a little bit. Because we reject submission. We resist the idea of placing ourselves under the authority of anybody else or submitting to having a humble heart in the community of believers. And I'm telling you, as we see this passage, like God does not rescue you from the pressure. God does not just give you a checklist so you can circumnavigate the pressure. He lets you walk into the pressure and the tension. And he's like, hey, you guys are going to have to figure this out. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the experiences of your lives. I'm going to give you the word of God. And I'm going to give you the community of believers. And with those four things, you guys are going to have to make a choice. Now, why do I bring this up right now? We have an awful lot of soft, humble hearts in this passage that were the foundation of the followers of Jesus. Like, like this is how the church got to where it was going, is with by, pe- by people who were willing to submit to one another, who were actually willing to listen to one another. We already talked about this idea that Paul and Barnabas did not have to go to Jerusalem and listen to those guys if they didn't want to. 
Paul and Barnabas could have been like, hey, go ahead, Jerusalem. Have your big church and watch it die because the Holy Spirit's not using you guys anymore because you're legalists. But they didn't do that. They went down there and submitted themselves to the judgment of Peter and James. Now think about this. Peter doesn't have to listen to anybody. Peter, he was the closest apostle to Jesus. This is a guy who walked on water. He was actually Jesus's friend. He was like, oh yeah, I remember the Sermon on the Mount. I was sitting there eating pistachios. I don't know, right? He remembers these things. He was a friend of Jesus. Peter preached at Pentecost. Thousands of people got saved. Peter's ministry has led thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to follow Jesus. And Paul comes in and says, you guys are wrong about circumcision. And Peter listens to him. He says, you know, you're right. He doesn't resist. Who are you to tell me? Peter doesn't go, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call First Jesus Church of Jerusalem. You guys can be Second Jesus Church. We're going to split. No, he humbly submits to the truth of the gospel. He listens to the people around him and says, you know what? There's a perspective here I didn't see before. He doesn't do the thing that we would do. Well, God hasn't convicted me about it. So when, you know, the Holy Spirit has my number, he'll tell me if he wants me to change. God didn't tell me. Yeah, God told you. He didn't tell me. No, he listens to and humbly receives from another. How about James? James is the brother of Jesus. James didn't have to listen to Paul either, and he probably didn't have to listen to Peter. You know, we think very highly of Paul today, but at the time, nobody thought highly of Paul. Like when James came into a place, it was like, oh, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. When Peter showed up, it was like, hey, Peter was like the apostle that preached at Pentecost. When Paul showed up, they're like, let's stone this guy. <laughs> like Paul did not get the red carpet rolled out for him. He didn't show up in a limousine. He wasn't on the speaking tour. He wasn't the conference speaker that everybody invited to town. Paul was just a guy that most of the places he went to, nobody knew who he was. In most places, he ended up stoned or dead or in prison or, or shipwrecked. And yet, James listens to this guy. James did not have to listen to Paul at all. If you want to do like the comparison thing, James was the brother of Jesus. James had been there from the very beginning. James was probably a believer in Jesus far longer than Paul. How many mature Christians would listen to somebody who is a less mature Christian? I know that's a stupid way to measure because we just said you don't actually earn God's acceptance by being better behaved. But in our minds, we have this idea, well, I've been saved for this long. I know my Bible. I know I memorize these verses. And then we got somebody who just got saved. How many of us would actually listen to what they had to say? James does that here. He actually receives from another brother who very, very easily could have been perceived as less mature than himself. That's very that's three very highly ranking leaders who could have just said, hey, God, I'm, I'm good. I know God's using me already. There's miracles. There's fruit from my ministry. Like, don't tell me what to do. And yet they follow the example of Jesus with humble hearts and submission. So look at what happens in verse 30. When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. This is awesome. This humility, this humble heart, this receiving from one another, this submitting to authority, like it works and like joy spreads and people are rejoicing in the gospel. And then look what happens. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they're like, hey, let's go back on our missionary trip and see how these believers are doing. Now, verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So when they had first gone on this missionary trip, it was Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. They got to the first city, and John Mark's like, I'm going to go home. I don't know he's homesick or whatever. He left, and Paul's still mad about it. Barnabas is like, let's bring John Mark. Paul's like, absolutely not. So look, verse 38. Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It's kind of funny, isn't it? That Paul and Barnabas make it through this huge issue about legalism, about adding to the gospel, and then they split up because of this silly argument over one guy. Should we bring him or not? Like, there's this huge issue in tension. Like, they're like, God brings them through that graciously. And then they get in this little argument about, should we bring this kid along with us or not? And they're like, no, I'm never going with you. Like, you, you I'll die before I hang out with you. There's a joke. Um, that Jewish people tell. I've been to Israel a couple times, so I'm not just saying that. It's a joke that they tell you when you're in Israel, right? If a Jew was stranded on a desert island, he would build two synagogues, one that he actually attended and one that he would never set foot in for the rest of his life, right? There's this like idea of like division that we have within us, which is why this message of like submitting and humble hearts is so important because even the people that did it great had to stay on their guard. Paul and Barnabas separate immediately, not immediately, but in our story, immediately after this incredible victory of humility and submission and unity, now they go in division. And I think it's funny. I say it's silly now, but at the time, I'm, I'm sure they thought it was a really big deal. Later on, Paul would write one of his letters and say how much he cared about John Mark. But at this point in Paul's life, for some reason, it's a really big deal to him. And, and I don't want to use I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I don't want to minimize whatever you're going through. Because there's probably something that really, right now, you're like, oh, it's a really big deal. But there's a chance, just a chance. May I suggest that maybe the thing you're so fired up about right now, 10 years from now, you, you might look back and be like, maybe that wasn't quite as big a deal as I thought it was. Like that seems to be what happens to Paul. Later on, he's like, you know what? I, John Mark's great. I should have just brought him with us. And, and, and like I said, I'm not trying to take somebody's side or the other, but maybe you came to church this morning, you're like, I got this thing. Maybe it's not quite as big a deal as you made it. Maybe instead of a 10, it's a 7 or a 2. <laughs> Maybe you're just like, ah! Like, 
We do that as humans, right? We think the thing that we're dealing with now is the biggest thing that's ever happened. And there's at least a chance that someday we'll think it's kind of silly. Like I think Paul and Barnabas probably think about this argument between them. If they had to go back and do it again, maybe they think it's silly. Maybe not. But there's a chance it might not be as big a deal as we are making it right now. And I want to go back as I finish. I got four minutes left. Can we hang out for four minutes? Okay. One person said yes, so we're in. There's a guy in back like, I should have said no. You should have. You had your chance. You didn't say it. Okay. Let's go back to something James said when he was thinking through the issue. He said this in verse 15. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Okay, so he's quoting the Old Testament. He said, there's this idea of like submitting to one another and like how do we navigate pressure and like do we add to the gospel or not or are we misrepresenting God? And like none of those issues are what James identifies the people of God with. He didn't say, you will know they are the people of God by, and there's none of those things about submitting to other people or, or having the right theology or staying true to the gospel. He says, here's the dividing line. Here's the identifying mark of the people who are going to heaven. They are for the name of God. That's it. That's it. A people for his name. And here's why I bring this up, because there's a lot of people on this planet who call themselves Christians, and the defining thing about them is something else. It's not that they are for the name of God. It's not that we are for his name. It's some other criteria that we are for or against or understand correctly. And that's not what James seems to think that God's intention was when he manifested the gospel. And if you're thinking in the back of your mind, well, that's great, Jerry, but you can't just be that easy. It can't just, we have to have rules so we can have to stand up for ourselves. And we have to be clear so we know who's on our team. I would ask the church of 2021 this question. Do we live with a confidence in the gospel's ability to shape and mold somebody's soul? Can we just say it's enough that you are for his name? Or is that too simple for us? No, we have to make rules to make people behave. Because that's revealing in your heart that you don't really believe that the gospel is good enough news to change somebody's soul. If you have this complication complex, right? if you think of the good news and you're like, it just can't be as simple as James says it is that we're just for the name of God. Like we have to have some qualifiers in there. I, I, would, I would tell you that might be an indicator that you don't think the gospel is strong enough on its own. We add to the gospel because we, we think it can't be that simple. See, if we dip our toe in the pool of legalism, if we wade in the waters of God's acceptance being something we have earned, what we're really saying is the gospel message isn't powerful enough as it is. The gospel message needs a little more. It needs to be a little more complicated. Or 
Do you hear the gospel? Do you sit under this incredible truth that the God of the universe, the creator God, loved us enough from the foundations of the earth, knowing all of our failures and all of our struggles, and has sent his son to wipe away our sin and express that love as a free gift, and we in our gratefulness will forever be a people who have forsaken all else and are simply identified as this, we are for his name. Is that simple enough to change your heart this morning? That's, that's how James seems to think the Old Testament describes the people of God. They're just for his name. They're just for his name. Not for our own name, not for our own agenda, not for our own little kingdom. We're just for God. Like we just want him. Like I, I love the simplicity of the gospel sometimes. My flesh wants to make it more complicated. But... The word of God tells me that the message of simply being for his name, of, of reading of his goodness, understanding the magnitude of what he has offered us, and just being about his name, that message is able to save souls and completely change lives. Amen? Amen. Worship team, come on up. By worship team, I mean Jake. Come on up. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I know that uh, you don't do things on accident. And there's a lot that we covered this morning. And, and I pray that we would be responsive to those areas that the Holy Spirit put his finger on. Maybe we don't listen to anybody. Maybe we're not humble enough to receive correction. Maybe we've lost sight of our need for repentance. Maybe we've withdrawn from the community of believers because we are pridefully assuming that we could figure it out on our own. Maybe we've overcomplicated the gospel because we don't have enough confidence in it. And Father, I pray wherever we are this morning that your spirit would just uh, give us the grace to see clearly how simple and great your gospel is that you would not burden your children this morning, Lord, but you would set them free. That you would call people to be a people for your name. We would rest in that simple message that it's, it's good enough and powerful enough to change hearts, change lives, remove burdens. Father, I pray for every single one in here that we would have a clear understanding of how good you are and not overcomplicate it with our own minds. You have forgiven our sin. You have given us hope. You have been a good and faithful and loving God for all of eternity. And for that, we are thankful. Give us grateful hearts as we sing of your goodness now to finish this service. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this last song.